was just asking myself, how can a job that I didn't want be causing me so much pain? And that's when I realized that something was wrong with my identity, right? I had somewhere over the course of the two to three years, who I am and what I do had become one in the same. So I was very much judging my own competence, my own worth, my own value by how well I was doing at work. And for anyone who's a professional, anyone in client services, that is just a very easy way to unravel because you are essentially tethered, right? Like one day you have a good project, the next day you have a bad project. One moment you have a good meeting, the next moment you don't. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, your host and resident storyteller, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope as always is that you lead this conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. Hey friends, we are back from our short break and I am just so happy to be back. Today we have a special episode, my friend Tola Sumanu Balagun, and she is an incredible storyteller. She's a partner at McKinsey & Company, one of the top consulting firms in the world, and I'm just a big fan of Tola of the woman that she is, the woman that she is becoming, of her podcast, Return to Self, where she shares her journey of acknowledging and unpacking all the voices in her head in a quest to live a more authentic, peaceful, and fulfilling life. I originally planned to air this episode to celebrate Mother's Day, but as you all know, life happens, and because of this theme, we delve into Tola's relationship with her mother, grief from the loss of her mother, and her journey to becoming a mother. She shares her personal journey of how she returned to self as she navigated personal and professional challenges. And we do touch on some more sensitive topics, including a traumatic experience with sexual harassment. So if this is a difficult subject for you, I'd skip over for about three minutes of the conversation 30 minutes in, and we'll include the exact time notes to skip over in the show notes. We also have a candid conversation about Tola's journey to becoming a partner at McKinsey. And because we explore just so many topics in this conversation, I decided to release part one this week and part two next week. Tola's story is a perfect example of how a path that may seem linear still has its twists and turns. I know we focus a lot on non-traditional career paths on this podcast, but the pursuit of traditional paths are also rich with interesting stories and lessons learned. These career paths are just as important. We need people with good intentions who want to create more equity in the workplace, who want to become better leaders, who want to change the world in positions of power. So if you want to climb the corporate ladder or if you're finding your way as you navigate your corporate career, then this episode will be extremely valuable. And if you just want to hear from a wise millennial woman, then this episode is also for you. But before we get to today's episode, let me tell you a bit more about Tola. She is an associate partner with McKinsey in Lagos, Nigeria, and she specializes in driving growth transformations in B2C companies 
companies on the continent, particularly in the telecommunications and financial services space. She has a deep knowledge in fintech, specifically payments, which she uses as a growth lever across the two industries. She joined McKinsey in 2016 and since then has led numerous engagements, including leading large-scale transformations across clients in Africa, leading strategy and build of payments companies in Nigeria, designing and implementing new growth capabilities such as digital marketing for financial institutions. And prior to McKinsey, she worked in an agriculture fund, Dereo Partners, where she led business development and fundraising. In this capacity, she launched one of the industry's first social impact bonds and helped to deliver financial services to thousands of farmers in northern Nigeria. She holds an MBA from Wharton Business School and a BS in economics from Stanford, and Stanford is actually where we met. I've always admired Tola from afar, but it was so nice to get to know her on a deeper level. I can't wait for y'all to hear this conversation, so let's get to it. All right, I am so excited to have Tola on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So y'all know I told you all the great things about Tola and her bio, and I just love the work you're doing with your podcast. I've learned so much from the content you've been putting out, and I'm just so curious about little Tola and how you grew up and, you know, tell us about your upbringing, about your family. Yeah, no, happy to. Look, when I think about my childhood, a big smile comes across my face. I had a great childhood. My childhood was fun. It was loving. It was adventurous, right? I don't know if you know this, but like, so I was born in Nigeria, but when I was six months old, we left and I lived in Scotland till I was four. And then I moved back to Nigeria when I was four and lived here till I was 10. And then I went to the Netherlands and lived there for like another four years. And then I went to boarding school in the UK. And then I went to America, which is where I met you. And I'm the youngest of four kids, right? So I also, I feel like my parents got it right with me. (laughs) So there was a lot of just love and fun in my childhood. But there was also, I feel like another word that would describe my childhood was striving. There was very much an emphasis in my household of excellence, And I think it was the same for all of my siblings, but I do feel that it was a bit more pronounced with me. And what that means, I often tell people that I literally, you know, grades were currency for me. So if I wanted to go on a trip, if I wanted to go on a ski trip to Austria with my friends, you know, I would like make deals. Okay, I'm going to (laughs) get 10 A's this term, (laughs) you know? Getting a B was not acceptable for me in my house. And so it was always this unending push, right? Like you can be better, so do better. Mediocrity is not acceptable of you. Be excellent, right? And in many ways, that was great because I do think that for the most part, the things that I have done, I have been excellent at them. And there are few things that I come across that I truly feel that I cannot do. I feel like I have a repertoire of things from my childhood, from my teens, from my 20s that I can pull on, right? Like I know that this was hard, but I did it, I got through. And so I can often pull on that, but it is a double-edged sword, right? I do think that I am also 
extremely critical of myself and the bar that I hold for myself is very, very high. And um, if I don't hit that bar, it can be quite critical. I'm working through it. I have an executive coach and we work through it. But I think that that is one thing. And I don't fault my parents for it. I think your parents do the best with the tools that they have. And I think, frankly, I will probably do the same with my kids. I think excellence is an important value, but that is just a feature of my childhood. And it is something that has carried itself through to adulthood as well. Yeah, no, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And I did not realize that you had such an international background growing up. Mm -hmm. And I am just a little curious about that. Like, how do you think that informed who you were and who you are today? Yeah, I don't see boundaries or I don't see borders. Maybe that's even the Mm. better way of saying it. I view myself very much. I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I am Nigerian. I'm proud to be Nigerian, but I also view myself as very much a nomad. Honestly, like I feel that I could live anywhere. I feel it sounds a bit cliche, but I truly feel like the world is my oyster. (laughs) I feel that I could get up and go anywhere and do anything anywhere and be successful. I don't feel caged by any borders. I feel that I can throw myself into new and maybe uncomfortable situations and be okay. But, or maybe not but, but I think and, one of the features of moving around so much though is I'm not someone that has one group of friends that I've had since I was eight, right? Mm -hmm. And we are in each other's weddings and we vacation together. That just has not been a part of my life. And in some ways it's great because I do feel that I can be in any group socially and make friends Uh, because I had to do that because I went to essentially three different high schools, right? So I've, I've had to do that. I've been the new kid three times. So I've had to just walk into a room and make friends. So that I think is a plus, especially professionally, when I'm in a professional quote unquote networking situation, I feel that I can talk to anyone about anything, but it can be a bit lonely Right. Like sometimes I wish I did have that group of five girlfriends that we've known each other our whole lives. Yeah. I find that I have to orchestrate sometimes having all of my friends from different groups. I have to yeah. orchestrate having them together. Right. And so all it means really is I find that I have to invest. And I'm not very good at it, honestly, but I find that I have to invest quite a bit of time in friendships because my friends are literally all over the world and they're not all in one group. So I need to make an effort to connect with people. And I found that the best way for me to do that is travel. So I'm not the friend that will call every day. I'm not the friend that will call every month, but when there is an event an important event, a life-changing event, I will show up. I will get on a plane and I will go. That is how I think that has impacted my life. But I wouldn't change it for anything. I love feeling that there are no borders in my life. Um, And I think that that gives me a sense of freedom. But it would be nice to have like a group of friends that I've known my whole life. But I don't think I guess it's for me. (laughs) No, accepting, you know, those circumstances and just seeing how beautiful that is, is really wonderful. You know, a life, looking at a life with no borders, you know, you had this upbringing where you were 
committed to striving. I feel like I'm seeing a lot of younger Tola. I'm trying to understand her and I still want to know though, I need the personality. Tell us a little bit about how you were growing up. How would your family describe you? I know you were the youngest. Tell us what that means in the family dynamic. I was really extroverted. So I was the kid that would do talent shows for my family to make them laugh, right? Like during dinner, I would get up, I would sing a song, I would do the splits, I would perform, you know, that was me. And to a certain extent, that still is me. Like we could be having dinner and I'll be like, guys, I just learned how to twerk. Let me show you. (laughs) So that still is me. So yeah, I think they would describe me as really extroverted, almost fearless, boisterous, always seeking to engage. My dad used to say that when he would come home from a long day of work and he would hear my footsteps, he'd want to go hide. Because he knew I was going to approach him and I would have all these questions and I would want to talk to him and, you know, just seeking to engage, seeking to connect. They would also describe me as smart. I mean, my mom at the time when she had me had gone back to school to get her degree to become a teacher. And so I essentially was her guinea pig. So I think I learned how to read when I was like three or something. And she did all of her Montessori exercises with me. The funny thing is I actually found my report card from when I was three years old, when I was going through her things recently. And I said to my dad, I was like, I could read at three. I mean, I have a four-year-old, so I know what it means to be able to read at three. And he said, yeah, your mom really invested a lot of time in you. And so I think that's also where this excellence comes from. So anyway, I think those are the words that they would use to describe me. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Because you did mention that there was more pressure on you as the youngest when it comes to the striving and the excellence. And perhaps it was because of the time that your mom poured into you. And it was like the timing of the work that she was doing in her own career. And then having this lovely guinea pig. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Go out and, you know, make her proud, which you did. Yeah. And in, you know, that's actually a really good transition to kind of the podcast and the work that you're doing with the podcast. I'd love to know more about, you know, return to self. Where did that come from? Tell us about the inspiration and the story behind that work. I started return to self really because I was having an identity crisis, which is where the name essentially comes from. I felt that I was no longer myself. I felt a sense of heaviness. I felt that there was something or things that were large, heavy, that were weighing on me and were masking who I really was and that I was forgetting who I really was. And I felt that very strongly. And I would even go as far to say that I knew it. It wasn't even just a feeling or a thought. I knew it. I knew that something was out of balance. And what I think made it clear that something was out of balance was in late 2019, I had come off of maternity leave and I had returned to work and I was on a project. And I'm on this project and I am literally in pain, right? Like I'm waking up every day with pain in my stomach. Mm. I could barely sleep. I was crying at work, going into the bathroom and just sobbing. And I just was having this crisis. 
And it really came down to the fact, I mean, the work I was doing at the time was very stressful. I felt that I was out of my depth. And again, remember I said excellence is a very big value for me. So feeling that I cannot achieve hurts. And I think it hurts more maybe than it would if excellence was not as much of a strong value. And I sort of had this moment where I had to ask myself, why do I feel this way? Because this is a job that I didn't want to actually in the first place. I had done consulting right out of undergrad after Stanford and I hated it. And so after business school, when consulting firms reached out, I said, no, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And through many different reasons, I ended up still going into consulting, but I took my time. I always tell people I was the most reluctant consultant, right? Like I graduated from Wharton in May. And then I think all my peers started in June. I was like, I'm going to travel the world. (laughs) And I didn't start till October. And even in October, I told my husband, maybe I should defer again. And he was like, you either go or you don't go. So fine. I, I went in October. And I'd grown to like the job, don't get me wrong, but I was just asking myself, well, how can a job that I didn't want be causing me so much pain? And that's when I realized that something was wrong with my identity, right? I had somewhere over the course of the two years, because I joined in 2016, somewhere over the course of the two to three years, who I am and what I do had become one and the same. So I was very much judging my own competence, my own worth, my own value by how well I was doing at work. And for anyone who's a professional, anyone in client services, that is just a very easy way to unravel because you are essentially tethered, right? Like one day you have a good project, the next day you have a bad project. One moment you have a good meeting, the next moment you don't. And so I felt that there was a very yo-yo effect happening in my life and I felt Mm. very out of balance, but it all came to a head with this particular project where I literally felt like my insides were on fire. And so I sort of was asking myself, what is going on here? Like, why don't I know who I am anymore? Or did I ever Mm. even know who I am? And then I read this book by Eckhart Tolle, A New Earth. And one of the things that stood out to me was a line he said, I mean, there were many things in that book, but there was a line he said, which was, how comforting is it to know that the voice in your head is not who you really are? And that's when I first got this realization that there is my true self and then there is this other person. (laughs) And then I maybe consciously or subconsciously thought, okay, I need to return to myself. I need to figure out who is the me that is content, comfortable, happy, in who she is, regardless of what is going on around her. And who is she without any of the labels? Like who is Tala if she's not a partner? Who is Tala if she's not a mother? Who is she if she's not a sister, a daughter, a friend? Like who am I? And how do I get comfortable with that person, right? Mm. And then in the course of being on that journey, what I also then realized was that There was trauma I had not yet dealt with. And I think that was also causing me to seek my identity in external things. And that trauma was losing my mother. So I lost my mother in 2017. And I think, no, I think, I know that between 2017 and 2019, I did all these things to mask the pain. And in doing all those things, that was where I started to cover up who I really was, right? So I started to work 
really hard. Like I threw myself into work. Like work was my vodka, right? (laughs) Think of any addiction, like workaholism is a real addiction. I threw myself into work to not have to deal with the fact that I had just lost my mother because nothing on this earth had prepared me for that type of pain. And I had allowed myself to feel the pain for a little bit, but then I just couldn't anymore. And I just used work and all of this to cover up all that pain. And so when I started Return to Self, I knew that one of the first things I had to do was deal with the trauma. I had to deal with the trauma before I could even then start trying to strip away all these things that were masking my identity. And so that's why my first episode, which I still think is my most popular episode to date, was just about me talking about grief. And writing that episode was so cathartic. I went on a walk. I was listening to Sheryl Sandberg's episode she did, I think, with Oprah when she lost her husband. And she was so raw and so vulnerable and it cracked something inside me, all the stuff that I think I had been trying to bury. And I started crying on the walk. I got home, I sat down and I wrote that episode like within 15 minutes. It all just came out. Like it was all there and it needed to come out. Mm. And I recorded it. And when I recorded it, I started to feel a little bit of this. I felt a bit of a shift. I started to feel a little bit of this. It was like I finally had taken a deep breath. And then I started the work. I started to, okay, so now let's deal with this identity crisis you're having with work. Why do you feel that work defines you? I also started to think about religion. What is it about your religious upbringing and being a Christian that actually defines you and how do you deal with that? So I went on a journey. I'm still on that journey, but I do feel very confident now that I know who I am. Sometimes external things do cloud it still, but I do know who I am. And I also think that that podcast really helped me in that season to strip away all those layers and start to return to a version of myself that I feel is authentic and a version of myself that I feel is free. Wow. I, (laughs) I, sis, I, wow. So I have, I just have to. (laughs) It's a lot. lot. But it's so beautiful. It's so real. It's so raw. It's so inspiring. And I feel very seen in your story. And I'll tell you that you sharing your story saved and helped my grief journey in ways that are inexplicable. Mm -hmm. And I remember that I listened to your podcast. I loved your podcast. You know, it's what I love about social media because we weren't super, super close, you know, in undergrad, but we always liked each other, always thought you were amazing. And I didn't have a lot of people that I could talk to who had experienced this, who were also just in a similar stage and like, you know, we're the same age have high pressure careers, you know, striving for excellence, close with our mothers. Like, I think I was engaged, you're married, like there's so much black women, you know, so much overlap. So I saw so much of myself in you. And so when you shared what you did during that time and how you had overworked and the things that you wish you would have done, I listened to that. I listened to your story 
I took heed. I said, okay, well, how am I going to deal with my grief journey? Because this is what Tola did. And this is probably what I would do. I would throw myself into this project, into this, into this, because that's Mm -hmm. very much how I am as an overachiever. So I decided to kind of immediately deal Mm. with the grief. Mm. And that story changed my life. And the other thing that you did, and I'm not sure if I told you this, but I could not listen to that episode about your mother and grief until my mother passed Mm. because she was sick when I was listening to your podcast and Mm. I could not even listen. Mm. And the day that she passed, I listened to it. Mm. And do you know how much calm and peace it brought me? Like God told me, girl, go listen to that podcast episode right now. And that's what I did. And it was so beautiful. And so it was just another example of how sharing our stories are just, you know, it's so powerful. It inspires action and unlocks something in you. Like you said, listening to that podcast episode with Sheryl Sandberg and Oprah. And so I just wanted to say thank you. Like, thank you for sharing that because what you could have done which I think a lot of people do, which I think is also great, is you know write it down and get it out and keep it for yourself. Yeah. And so it takes a certain amount of bravery and courage and willingness to share a very challenging and difficult part of your story with the world. But yeah. I will tell you that it changed lives and it changed mine. Thank you. That's very humbling to hear because I almost didn't release it. I wrote it. I recorded it, but I didn't publish. And Mm. the day I published it, I was terrified. Like I literally pressed publish and then I shut my laptop. And I couldn't believe that even one person listened to it, to be honest. (laughs) But I felt very much, I'm a big fan of listening to my body. My body tells me when I'm stressed. My body tells me when I'm scared. My body tells me many things. And I felt deep in my gut that I needed to release it. And maybe I needed to release it just so you could hear it. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. I I felt that I needed to release it. And and I'm happy that it helped because I do think that there was something a little bigger than me working when I released it. And so I'm, I'm happy that it served and continues to serve its purpose. Yeah, no, definitely. And what I love now, and I feel like we're both doing this too, is we are just seeing all the little things and how our mothers have just had such a positive impact on our lives and really carrying their memory and the way that we move through the world. And I feel like it is so beautiful. And I'm just curious about what have you learned from your mother? What were the biggest lessons learned? Hmm. You could tell us a little bit about her. I know she was a teacher. I'd love to know. What did I learn from my mama, Lady Funke, as I call her? A couple of things, actually. I'll start maybe with some that are a bit funny, but but real, right? Mm-hmm. My mom always looked amazing. I do not remember seeing my mom without red lipstick. Oh. Like she, my mom, just her hair was always done. She looked great. Her skin was popping. And sometimes like I would look a hot mess. <laughs> like, and she would see me just whether it was going to work or going out. And she'd be like, why do you look like this? (laughs) And I remember once, I think maybe it was when I was interning 
I think it was when I was interning in my internship between business school. I think I'd had a rough week at work and I was not looking great. And she said to me, she was like, didn't they teach you at business school that you like rule number one is you need to look good when you walk into the meeting. (laughs) And I've sort of taken that heart because as much as we want to admit it or not, first impressions matter, how you show up matters. I will admit that it is gendered. I think women have to show up looking a little bit more presentable than men, right? But it matters. And my mom lived that. And I think that that's just fantastic. Like sometimes I look at myself, I'm like, oh, my nails aren't done. What would my mom say? You know what I mean? And so I I think that. that, yeah, my mom just always looked great. I think the second thing that I learned, and funny enough, I learned it more after she passed. I knew my mom was always generous and kind, but I didn't actually realize how philanthropic she was. So at her funeral, mad people came up to the mic and were saying all these things my mom had done. And me, like our whole family, we literally all looked at each other like, who are they talking about? (laughs) Like she had paid tuition for all these people. She paid hospital. She had done all these things. And I still try and emulate that. Like after she passed, I actually definitely started to take giving and philanthropy a lot more seriously because her funeral was literally one of those things you read about where it's like, you know, you want to know that when you die, you've impacted so many lives. And I knew that people were going to come up and say, my mom ran a school. So I knew that there was going to be a lot of testimonials about the children she had helped educate, etc. But I did not expect all of this silent philanthropy that she was essentially doing in communities that even my dad didn't know. But my dad was also like, who are they talking about? (laughs) So I think just that philanthropy and doing it for you, like my mom never made a big deal about these things, but she was out here just giving and impacting lives in ways that we didn't know. So I think that's the second lesson that I've learned. I think the third lesson from her was really around finding and living in your purpose. My mom really felt that teaching, educating, et cetera, were her purpose. And she wanted to own her own school from the age of like eight years old. And she never wavered from that. So even when my parents were younger and they didn't have a lot of money, she was selling clothes out of the trunk of her car there was a local farm she used to go to get eggs, sell eggs, like she hustled, but she never lost sight of what she wanted to do. And by the time I came around and they'd been married for like 10 years or so, 10, 15 years, and they had a little bit more money, she started building her school. So I saw her bring her vision to life, mm-hmm. right? And as much as running a business is stressful and running a business in Nigeria is stressful, etc. There was so much joy that that school and living out that purpose created in her. And so even after she passed, I remember one of the books I read was The Purpose Driven Life because I felt that she really had lived a purpose-driven life. And then maybe the last thing, many lessons, but also my mom played no games, man. Like, (laughs) Funke didn't come to play. Like, I'll tell you a story. When I was younger, I was maybe eight. I was eight. I grew up in 
an estate that was called Shell Camp. So my dad worked for Shell and the way it worked in Nigeria at the time and still to a certain extent is if your parents worked in one of the oil companies, it was literally like a gated estate that you lived in, a gated community that you lived in. And so there was a bus that used to come into this, into Shell Camp and would take us to school because I didn't go to school in Shell Camp. And there was a bus conductor on that bus that was very inappropriate with me, right? So he literally said to me one day, so he would make comments like, you're very pretty, or you know, you're my wife, just things that you don't say to an eight-year-old, right? And then one day he said to me, one of these days when we drop you off at home and your parents aren't home, I'm going to come into your house and I'm going to fuck you. And I was terrified, (sighs) terrified. Because these people knew where we lived, right? Like the bus literally dropped us at our homes. And I remember for a moment thinking, have I done something wrong? Should I tell my parents? You know what I mean? Like there's this moment of shame, maybe shame. a bit of hope. Yeah. But I just mm-hmm. thought, no, no, I need to say something. So that day at dinner, we're sitting in the white dining table in the kitchen. And we're eating eba and some local sauce, some local stew. And I'm nervous. And I look at my mom and I say, I think I'm being sexually abused or sexually harassed. Something, something I'd heard on like Jerry Springer, Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) And my mom stops eating. She puts her two hands on the table to steady herself. She stands up and she says, tell me everything. And so I tell her. And at the time, my dad was on a business trip. So she calls my dad and she is livid. She's like, you need to come back right now. Da, 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 da. Loses her mind. Yeah. So the next day, she comes with me to the bus stop. Ashley, my mother came with soldiers, like actual military men came with me <laughs> to the bus stop. Yes, and my mom sees the guy and literally takes off her shoe holds it in her hand like the stiletto is in her hand like a knife and she runs after him and she lunges right like my mom played no games especially when it came to her kids especially when it came to her kids and that level of courageousness fearlessness boldness yes protectiveness I actually have a tattoo on my wrist that says you are brave, my child, in Yoruba, because that for me was my mother, right? So she was a very brave woman, especially when it came to her kids. She didn't play no games. She didn't take she didn't, she didn't take any no crap. Games. So so that I think are the are the things that I've learned from her. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Many stories wow. like my mom yes. like she she would throw some punches if she needed to. That was my mother. I love that so much. I love your mother so much. I love that you are a reflection of her. I see so much overlap in our mothers, which is Mm. so interesting because I was saying there's so much overlap in our stories. So that tie there, the first thing, just with looking good wherever you go. I remember my mom used to work on this Rodeo Drive at Mm -hmm. all the different Mm -hmm. stores and get the discounts when she was Mm -hmm. younger. And she passed Mm -hmm. down her bags to me. And she always made sure that I had lipstick on, lip gloss on, (laughs) Vaseline when I was little. Your lips can't be dry. You got to look cute when you're out this house. Like she, and she, she said the same exact thing to me. She said, 
it's just like this society. I don't like it, but they're going to judge you when they see you. Yeah. And you are my daughter. You yeah. are Belinda's daughter. So yeah. you need to look correct. And I was like, oh, yeah. God, mom, stop. Like, you're so annoying. But like. <laughs> but it's true. And, but, you, but I have to say, though, Ashley, you always looked good in college. Like, I do remember that. I'm like, how does, I'm like, we're out here just struggling to stay alive. <laughs> like, how is this girl's hair curled? And like, <laughs> you say so you definitely took on the lessons. I'm still learning because sometimes I still got a mess. But yeah, I know you. You, definitely, you definitely took the lesson and ran with it. Thank you. No, yes, that was all my mother. And yeah, <laughs> and just not playing games and philanthropy, all of that, inspiring women, helping people. So, I love all of these lessons learned, and now you get to pour into your own children. And Mm -hmm. so I'm curious, because we've talked about a lot of things, and I'd love to know about a few things. Let's start with, how do you just balance the high-pressure career? And you are still in consulting, which we need to dig into. I know you say you didn't love it, now you've grown to like it. So I want to know about that, and then just balancing that work with being a mother, being a wife, being a friend, still being a daughter, you know, sister, all of the different roles that you take on and also just being you. And we talk about that, like who you are outside of your relationships to everybody else. Yeah. Honest truth. I don't balance it very well, but I also don't strive to balance it. Let me maybe explain what I mean. When I think of balance, at least, you know, when you go to these circus shows and you see someone holding maybe swords or sticks with fire and they've got one in their mouth, one in their right hand, one in their left hand, one on their chest, and they are holding it in balance, right? And you can see their back is bending and there's a lot of strain, but they're, mm-hmm. it's balanced. And then yeah. at the end, they drop it all and then everyone stands up and, and applauds. That is not me. Like I do not have those things in mass, but I also don't strive for that because that person is under an extreme amount of pressure, right? Trying to balance all those things. I am more of the novice juggler that comes in to the circus, right? And they have a couple of balls and they're throwing them in the air and sometimes it's flowing and sometimes a couple balls drop, but they don't freak out. They leave them on the floor. They keep having a good time. When they're ready, they pick it back up again. Sometimes all the balls collide in the air. Also don't freak out, keep it going, right? That is my definition of balance. Mm -hmm. And what that means practically is like on a day-to-day basis, I do not put the pressure on myself to strive for balance, right? But over a period of time, it has to make sense. So I'm going through a period right now at work where I'm working very hard. and I'm definitely not working out as much as I would like. I'm not seeing my kids as much as I would like. I'm not, you know, and, 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 right? The things that I, mm-hmm. I wish I was doing that I'm, that I'm not. But I'm also aware and conscious that this will not last forever, And if it does last forever or start to feel like it will last forever, then I need to make some different choices. But when I look at my life over a one-month period, a two-month period, a three-month period, that's when I have to ask myself, okay, are all the balls on the floor? Have a couple of balls been on the floor for too long? Which balls do you need to pick up? And so it's balance over slightly longer-term periods that I aim for because Striving to get balance, perfect balance, perfect harmony on a day-to-day basis. I think this is the lie that has been told to women, frankly. Yeah. 
it is hard to do that. And it creates unnecessary, in my opinion, unnecessary pain, unnecessary guilt, unnecessary shame. And men never get asked that. Men never get asked, how do you balance it? Because no one expects them to. Right. <laughs> no one expects them to. So I, I ask them that though on the show. I'll say that. Good. But. Good. <laughs> good. And so that's how I make something that resembles balance out of this very messy juggling show that is currently my life. And the other thing is, <laughs> I will say this. I have a fantastic husband in that we are truly partners. So there's also nothing that I do at home that feels unequally weighted, right? Like I don't feel that, oh, I'm more responsible for the kids than he is, or I'm more responsible for meals or keeping the house clean or et cetera, et cetera. We have a really good balance. I will caveat this with saying in Nigeria, I also have a lot of help right? Because okay. you can afford to have help here, right? I legitimately, <laughs> your listeners who are not in Nigeria are going to laugh when I say this. I have a nanny per child, right? So I have help. <laughs> I have a nanny per child. <laughs> I have a driver. I have a cook, right? Okay, so, yeah. so, so I need I to have, move to Nigeria. That is what you're saying. I am a Baba Day. Yes. Yes. So that is what we need to do. Okay. That thank is you. the basic <laughs> So there is a mindset I have that I do not need to balance at all. I live in a part of the world and I'm fortunate to have enough resources that I can afford to have help. But I also, you know, you can have help, but you cannot like outsource raising your kids. Right. And I also have a fantastic partner who we are partners in every true sense of the word. Like he understands what it is I do for a living. I understand what he does for a living. He's more flexible than I am. And he never makes me feel guilty about anything. And he will trade things off as an example. We had our daughter. I had her in America. I didn't get her ears pursed in America because frankly, trying to balance breastfeeding, not sleeping, getting ears pierced was not top of my priority at all. And so we get to Nigeria and my husband, Dilly, is like, oh, when are we going to get her ears pierced? And like, people keep asking. And I'm like, Dilly, honestly, I'm really busy. And so I don't have time to go to a hospital because you do it in the hospital. I don't have time to go to the hospital right now and get her ears pierced because that's going to take up a big part of my day. Because we know that if we book an appointment at 10, no one is actually going to see us at 10 and it's going to be a long, a long thing. And then I said jokingly, I'm like, if you care so much, you do it. And he was like, oh, okay. And so the next day he took her, he got her ears pierced and he came home. And when I tell some of my friends, it's like, your husband took her? And I'm like, yeah. Like, what? first of all, I don't even understand why it didn't occur to me in the first place for him to just go, like, why I even thought this had to be my responsibility. But that's just an example of how we operate. Like, we don't really have gendered roles in our household. We just work together and figure it out and make it work. You know, and same goes yeah. to him. If he's going through a busy period and I have a bit more flex, I will also chip in. But yeah, that's my definition of balance. Hopefully, you know, <laughs> my kids don't end up in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope I'm doing the right thing. Oh, I love that so much. Such a beautiful description, just even starting with the metaphor regarding the circus act and then how you go about trying to 
do it over various periods of time and and just going back and doing that like life audit, that balance audit that, you know, is extremely helpful. I think that's wonderful advice. I appreciate your honesty. I agree this bar and standard is too high and I'm looking for a different word. I use balance because I know they understand what I'm talking about when I use it. And I know that there are lots of different ways to do it. So I appreciate you just sharing how you do it. I am curious about what motherhood has taught you. Can you tell us about your own motherhood journey? Motherhood has accentuated parts of me that I think were always already there, but it has brought them out in a much more fuller manifestation. So as an example, and my husband even said this to me the other day, he was like, you're really affectionate. Mm -hmm. And it's because when I'm with my kids, I'm always kissing them. I tell my son I love him all the time. We have a nighttime routine now where I say, who loves you the most in the whole wide world? (laughs) He says, you and daddy and Demi, his sister. He doesn't like to do it anymore. But when he was a little younger, we used to do 20 kisses before he would go to bed. But now he's like, I don't even kiss me on my lips. You know, when I'm with my daughter, I am like smothering her cheeks, her big fat cheeks with kisses. And my husband is like, I mean, <laughs> I knew you were nice, but I didn't know you were this affectionate. <laughs> He'd never like seen that part of me. So I think that that has come. And I think it's a wonderful thing, to be honest. I think it's a wonderful thing. I think my kids in that sense have like cracked something open in me. There's just a lot more love in me than I think I thought there was. I think the second thing that motherhood has taught me or is teaching me is to be very conscious of the examples I put out in the world, the messages I put out in the world, because I realize that I'm very responsible for shaping the lives of these two individual souls that happened to be given to me to go out into the world, right? And so it's little things. So for instance, I was working really hard one day And I was telling my son, I was like, man, I'm tired. And he was like, why are you tired? I'm like, oh, because I've been working so hard. And he says, why do you work so hard? And initially, I wanted to give him a very almost simple answer, right? Oh, I work hard so that I can make money and you can buy nice things. But then I thought, that's not actually why I work. And I also don't want him to think that you only work for money. You know what I mean? And he's, he's, and some might argue, okay, he's four. Will he ever remember this? But I think he will. And I think the messages that we send our kids, our kids are always watching, especially my son. My son is a very attentive little boy. And so I think motherhood is making me more aware of the messages and the actions that I put out into the world, especially with my kids. Not to say that it makes me feel censored. Like, I don't feel and I don't subscribe to the notion that, you know, just because you're a mom, you can't like wear certain things or you can't go out in the club. I mean, if you're on my Instagram, I'm out and I'm having a good time. So it's not amazing. Right. Thank (laughs) you. But it's just the awareness of what are the messages, ideals, and values that I want to pass on to my kids? And also, what is the stuff from my childhood that I haven't dealt with? And how do I ensure that I don't just perpetuate the cycle, right? So I think those are some things that motherhood is teaching me. But most importantly, I think it's just teaching me love. 
Like these kids are just amazing. And bear in mind, I didn't always want to have kids. So this is not someone who, I'm not someone who, you know, from the age of like 18, I used to think about having, in fact, when I got married, there was a point I said to Dele, my husband, I was like, I don't want kids. And would you be okay with that? And he was kind of like, whoa. (laughs) But he was like, if you honestly like don't want them, then that's fine. I care about you more than having children. And in a way, perhaps maybe one of the biggest gifts that my mom gave me was the desire to have kids. Because after she passed, like literally, my mom died at home. So she was in the bed. And I was flying back from London. So she had been getting her treatment in London, but we knew that she was dying. And so my dad flew her back in an air ambulance to Nigeria because he said, and I think they both agreed that she would rather die in her own home. And so I flew back to Nigeria the next day because I was just gathering her stuff and taking care of some logistics in London. And I flew back in the evening and she had died that morning. So she was still in the bed when I got home. Mm -hmm. And I remember laying next to her dead body, next to her corpse. And I said, and I don't know where it came from inside me. I said, send me beautiful babies. And Mm. it was almost like her dying made me very aware of, I guess, the cycle of life, the circle of life. And in a life going away, I got a real urge and a yearning to create a life. And now that I have my kids, the Mm. new levels of love that have unlocked in me are so beautiful. I'm so happy I did it. Not saying that kids are for everyone, don't get me wrong. But for me, I'm really happy I did it. I read a quote somewhere and it really resonated. I love my kids more than evolution requires, right? Like it's just an inexplicable type of love. And I'm really happy that I have that kind of love in my life. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share the podcast with friends and family. And my hope is that these stories help you navigate your No Straight Path journey. If this content is adding value to your life, and I hope it is, please take a few minutes out of your day to rate the show and write a review. You can click the link in the show notes to write a review. It helps other listeners find the show, and I just really appreciate it. Have a lovely week, embrace the journey, and remember... You're not alone.